Welcome to Building Local Power. I'm your host, John Farrell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For this episode, we're talking cities and the mobility revolution with David Morris, ILSR senior fellow and co-founder. From Uber to scooters to drones, we talk about the ways technology is changing how we move people and goods, and how cities have to wrestle with prioritizing the use of public space to match the demand. I know that this is for building local power, and I'm supposed to give some sort of like clever intro or welcome or ask you about a number or something, but I'm not good at that in the way that Chris is. Mm -hmm. Um, That's fine, by the way. (laughs) That's good. I just like Mm -hmm. to dive in. There's so much interesting stuff to talk about. So I think I'll start by just saying electric scooters, I've ridden on them a couple of times. I find them fascinating. I've also been in enough cities, even across the world, to see that they're all over the place. And so I was hoping uh, to start by talking to you about scooters and other mobility options, bikes and e-bikes. I feel like cities are confronting a sort of wild west of transportation mobility uh, in this day and age. And where I wanted to start with, because I know that you are someone who researches deeply uh, these threads throughout time, is this something that cities have had to confront before? Well, yes, uh, cities did have to confront it before. Uh, and, and when I say this, uh, what I mean is a technology uh, driven in some ways uh, transportation revolution where cities are going to have to reassess uh, the, the public spaces, uh, reprioritize uh, who has access to those public spaces. Uh, and gain a great deal more sophistication and capacity. Uh, And this happened once before. It happened in the 1890s. uh, And it happened around the introduction of the bicycle. Actually, the introduction of the safety bicycle. Uh, That was the bicycle that we ride today that has two equal wheels uh, and the like. And so it was easy to ride. And uh, what it did, uh, it became a craze. Uh, in the 1890s, there were, you know, it was a million, more than a million um, bikes uh, that people were riding. It, it just, it was like a tidal wave, uh, and it was embraced most vigorously, aggressively, um, by women, uh, and it was seen as a, a very liberating uh, technology for women because they had the ability then to just get on their bike and go. Uh, and women were very constricted in their activities in those days. And if they were on transportation, there was a male chauffeur. Uh, and so this was their, their liberation. And, and Susan B. Anthony, uh, who is a leader of the, the women's uh, movement for many years, uh, said in, the, in 1895, let me tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. Uh, and, uh, and it also, uh, since, uh, since, uh, bicycles have, uh, are, are cumbersome advice, uh, devices to ride on. If you happen to have your corsets and your low flowing dresses and the like low hanging dresses, uh, it changed the, the dress code, if you will, uh, for, uh, women and women, uh, created what they call the rational dress movement, uh, where they wore, we call them bloomers. They, we call them pants. They call them bloomers. Uh, and, and so it was a, it was a very uh, useful uh, technology to create a social movement. But also it created the question of who has access to streets. Because at that time in the 1890s, everyone had access to streets almost equally. 
you had, of course, horses, then you had pedestrians, then you had horse-drawn wagons uh, and the like, um, but they had, you know, fairly uh, equal access. Uh, and in the 1890s, two technologies came into cities. One was the bike, as we've mentioned, and the other was the electric streetcar. And the electric streetcar got a lane all to itself because it was laying down tracks. Uh, and the bicycle, you know, then was having to dodge the electric streetcar, but also had to dodge very angry men on horses uh, and, uh, and, their, uh, and their wagons. So there had to be some rules created uh, about, about streets. Uh, and at the same time, they had to create rules about, uh, they had to create a, a, a walking path for pedestrians, which we call sidewalks. So the 1890s was a time where they, they really were creating uh, new rules. Uh, and uh, by the end of the 1890s, uh, you had uh, electric bikes that were beginning to look a little like cars. You had the first electric uh, motorcycles uh, beginning to be uh, created. Uh, and you had, uh, you had uh, motels, uh, if you will, that were for bicyclists. Uh, you, had, uh, you had people who would take your bike uh, the concierges, and they would park your bike. They had parking garages, uh, and they had bike paths between cities. Uh, that is, they were bike paths next to the roads, but they were much better maintained uh, than the roads. Uh, and then the car came in. Uh, and when the car came in, it came in timidly at first. Uh, and then after the Model T was introduced in 1908 and it became a mass vehicle, it became a great deal more aggressive. Uh, and we sort of know the history of the car, uh, where it essentially claimed the streets. Uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s, for example, uh, you, didn't, you couldn't park on the streets. In fact, by the 1870s, uh, there were rules that you didn't park on the streets. You didn't leave your wagon uh, on the streets uh, and the like. Uh, and so that etiquette had to be changed uh, for the cars to demand uh, not only the, the width of the street, but it had to demand that the uh, that uh, that it could also take up part of that uh, with uh, for stationary uh, vehicles, and it got to the point where the sidewalks became narrower and narrower. And at one point, there was some who were thinking that that sidewalks should be eliminated if the cars were going to be uh, so dominant. Uh, and then the car companies uh, undermined the streetcars, uh, and by the 1950s, uh, the the cars were so dominant that cities were passing rules, regulations about parking on private land. I mean, so far we've been talking about cars on public land, which is the streets and the parks. Uh, but here we're talking about codes that required a certain number of off-street parking uh, for businesses. Uh, so by the late 1950s, you really had the heyday, uh, if you will, uh, of cars. So it feels like since the 1950s, you know, we've dabbled in other forms of transit. We have buses, which of course just share the road with cars for the most part. Uh, we've gotten some new transit by rail in various cities, uh, but a lot of cities that had their transit, uh, like subways, kept them, and cities that had streetcars lost them, and then some have come back with other forms. But this seems like a really dynamic time all of a sudden where we have private companies coming in, providing mobility options, so there's 
you know, first it was, you know, a, a decade ago or so, or maybe a little longer, we started talking about car sharing, which was interesting, but it didn't really change the rules. But now, like you've said, you've got all of this issue about public space uh, and, and whatnot. Um, I, I, f- I feel like I have a couple different questions for you. One is about what are what are some of the technology drivers here? So we're not talking about the introduction of a bike in the way that we did in the 1890s, but we are talking about technology driving this. And then the second one is about how are Uber and Lyft fitting into this because they sort of created this craze around ride hailing and and cars, but they're now getting into this other these other forms of transportation as well. Yes, well, it's a good question, uh, and I mean, what we're seeing here is a a, a revolution in personal uh, transportation, and uh, the 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 reasons for it is the coming together of several trends. Uh, sort of simultaneously. One is the technology, uh, which is the introduction of the smartphone, uh, the introduction of GPS systems, uh, and the introduction of lower cost batteries. Uh, And so you had for the first time the capability of essentially calling up uh, a vehicle, which would be the ride share, uh, like Uber, uh, or uh, renting uh, a vehicle by the minute uh, with with your smartphone. Uh, which is your your electric uh, e-scooters and your uh, electric bikes. So you could have on-demand personal uh, transportation. Uh, and that technological revolution came about uh, around, the t- around 2010, 2012, if you will. Uh, the second thing was the revolution in, in business financing. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is also a historical where, you know, you used to start a business and you started it small uh, and you gradually got larger uh, and then you might become global eventually. Uh, but with the new startups, uh, they, the, uh, the capital, they raise enormous amounts of capital up front. Uh, and then their goal is not to start uh, a e-scooter in one city or an e-bike in one city, uh, but actually to start them in 100 cities or 200 cities uh, within 12 months. That is to dominate the cities, to brand themselves and dominate the cities. Uh, and as a result, they lose an enormous amount of money for a long time. And some might say forever. Certainly Uber uh, and Lyft are, are still losing a, a great deal of money. Um, but it, 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 what it means is that cities are caught unaware uh, uh, and, and overnight, literally overnight, uh, they they suddenly see uh, all these things within their jurisdiction, uh, and the third uh, the third sort of coincidental movement is political, uh, and the political uh, movement uh, was the renewed or the resurgence of the bike, uh, that is the pedal bike, uh, and so you you had uh, in fact a a group of people, the you know, bicyclists that is that began to demand uh, bike lanes. Uh, and then uh, around 2010 or so, you had these uh, docked bike racks. Uh, and so you would go and you would uh, essentially put your credit card in and then you could rent the, the bike. Uh, but they were docked. Uh, and there was a, an enormous increase in the number of docked bikes. In fact, from uh, 2010 to 2017, the number of trips that were taken by docked bikes went from 300,000 to 35 million. And then in late 2017, the e-scooters came in 
And in 2018, the number of rides on e-scooters was 40 million. That is, it dominated uh, the uh, the docked uh, bikes. Uh, and dock bikes have just about disappeared, actually. You have dockless bikes, but you no longer have dock bikes. Uh, and so, you know, those are the three things that the three sort of coming together, the fact that technology has made it possible, the finance, new finance systems uh, made it everywhere at the same time. Uh, and the political movement was that there was already the beginnings of a struggle around uh, access to the streets by by personal uh, vehicles uh, and by and, and by bikes. Um, so that's what essentially is the is the the new revolution. Uh, and e-scooters uh, came out of Santa Monica, uh, and I believe it was June or July of 2017 uh, that they in fact dropped a few of them around Santa Monica uh, and then sent a note to the city saying they've done this. Uh, and within six months, they were in 50 to 75 cities. Uh, and within a year and a half, there were many companies and they were going around the world. Uh, and the revolution there was simply, uh, there was a technological revolution, but, but the, uh, the essence of the revolution was that you didn't need to have a dock. You just rented it. And when you were finished, you dumped it someplace. And somebody else would collect it uh, during the night and then they'd set them up and you'd do the same thing. And so cities literally woke up one morning and saw these these things were all over the sidewalks and all over the the uh, the uh, the parks. Uh, people were stumbling uh, across them. Uh, people were putting them on fire. People were dumping them in the rivers. Uh, and so you 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 literally you know had to deal with them. Cities had to deal with these new uh, these new uh, these new creatures. Uh, and and cities had had experience a couple of years before that uh, with Uber and Lyft. Uh, and so Uber and Lyft were sort of the first generation of these technologies that essentially uh, scaled very quickly because of the capital behind them uh, and abided by the principle that you you uh, you essentially uh, do it first and ask permission afterwards that you go fast and break things. That's the motto of, of Silicon Valley. Uh, and so they came into cities and cities had to deal uh, with uh, with these uh, with these new vehicles. And that was a real learning experience for cities. Uh, and so when the e-scooters came in, a number of cities, not that many, but a number of cities actually had some some sort of capacity uh, to understand what these creatures were based on their experience with uh, with Uber. For example, when Uber came in, uh, it uh, it essentially said, we are going to get rid of the car. People aren't going to drive anymore because they're going to uh, call uh, a, uh, an Uber vehicle. Uh, and cities bought into that. And of course, part of this political movement that's in favor of, of the bike was against the car. You have a massive anti-car movement for a whole bunch of reasons uh, now. Uh, and, uh, and so you, you, uh, you, you essentially had Uber saying, you know, we're going to reduce congestion. And it turned out that the data indicated that they increased congestion. Uh, that, you know, if you, uh, if you didn't drive your car, uh, but you called Uber, that's sort of a one-on-one, one-for-one relationship. Um, but while the Uber driver is is roaming around waiting for another ride, uh, that's a car that's that's essentially congesting uh, the streets. Uh, and so cities felt they were taken by that propaganda. And when the e-scooters came in, they felt that they needed to treat them very differently. So yeah, let's talk about that. It seems like the big issue here with all of these is the use of public space. So whether it's 
Uber ride-hailing cars trolling around looking for jobs, or dockless scooters, or now dockless bikes, there's all this new use by these different mobility things of streets or sidewalks uh, and, and public right-of-way. How are cities dealing with that? And then and, and I think after that, let's tackle some of the other big issues that are raised by these forms of mobility. But let's start with that issue of public space. How are cities confronting this? Well, what cities did uh, originally uh, was to ban them. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, some cities just picked them up and, and, uh, and, uh, 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 essentially confiscated, uh, the vehicles. I mean, they were sprawling all over the place and there was huge public outcry uh, against them. And so cities banned them and then cities, uh, began to figure out, you know, regulations for how they could regulate them. Cities have been, have been essentially promoting personal transportation. The feeling is that this is a technology that could be liberating, that could be helpful, uh, and they shouldn't essentially ban it, but there needed to be rules around it. Uh, and so over the last two years, cities have been evolving the, the rules that they impose, first of all, they had to take, they had to impose their authority. They had to say, uh, you can't uh, do this unless you get a permit from us. Uh, that was the first step because there really was no regulations around this. Uh, and then the second step was, uh, what would that permit entail? What would be the conditions attached to it? Uh, and part of those now are that you are limited to a certain number of vehicles. It might be a bike, it might be a scooter. Uh, and the second uh, that a number of them have done is uh, you can't ride on the sidewalk. Uh, and so they, they uh, identify the space, public space that you're uh, allowed to, uh, to ride on. Uh, and then the third might be a helmet or insurance. And the fourth might be lights and the like, just the way you have regulations related to bikes uh, riding at night. Um, so, you know, slowly but surely, uh, cities are, uh, in fact, trying to, to grapple with this. And the pedal bicyclists have been very supportive. There's been a coalition, if you will, of pedal, pedal bicyclists and electrified uh, bicyclists uh, and e-scooter uh, operators, uh, primarily because the pedal bicyclists felt that the e-scooter companies had an enormous amount of capital. And in fact, they would be the battering ram uh, that could, in fact, raise that whole struggle over public space because the bikes were taking it was a it was a very slow struggle uh, to get a a lane uh, of a uh, of a street carved out for bikes, especially a protected uh, lane. So there was a coalition, um, but as the technologies themselves have evolved. Uh, you know, there's an evolution and it's interesting. The scooters to me are a technological fad, which will, I mean, it, it, it'll be a niche thing and it might continue, but it'll be niche um, because people don't like to, I think, uh, they don't like to be mobile standing up. Let's just put it that way. Um, so you're going to have a seat. Uh, and once you have a seat, uh, it becomes a, a somewhat different vehicle. Uh, and then you have a seat and you have a roof. Well, you have a roof. Well, and now you have doors. Uh, and so you now do have these vehicles. You have cargo bikes, uh, for example, electrified cargo bikes uh, that carry things. Uh, and these new types of vehicles uh, are small enough and narrow enough uh, that they can go into the bike lanes. Uh, and now the bicyclists are not happy. Pedal bicyclists are not happy about that. 
Uh, and, and so you're now having a tension, you know, really, uh, between different forms of technology. Uh, and so there would be less tension if the entire street was available for them, but there's a lot more when it's just a narrow uh, lane uh, that, that, uh, that is. So cities have learned about this, and I was just reading uh, an interview with the director of the San Francisco Metropolitan Transit Association, and it's, you know, San Francisco and Los Angeles have one of the more sophisticated transportation agencies in the sense that they really are pondering what this thing means. Uh, and he uh, was talking about how what he would like uh, governments to do is to view this the way the federal government viewed the electromagnetic spectrum in the 1930s. Uh, that is what the federal government uh, did was to say, this is public. Uh, we own it. That is, we collectively uh, own it. And we want to create rules that foster innovation, uh, but do it in a way that promotes uh, competition uh, and, a, uh, and a free and a, and a fair uh, market. Uh, so it was a limited resource, uh, and they would allocate it, you know, based on what promoted the public good. Now we know what happened to to that in terms of commercialization and privatization, you know, and the like. But it was a, but he he and I I think so too. It's a it's a, a useful way to think about how we use the public space, uh, and it's a very sophisticated. You know, way of thinking about how you use the public space. Um, you know, we, we haven't talked about the issue of transit and personal uh, mobility um, because a, you know, mass transit system still exists and it's the, it's the cheapest way by far of getting from point A uh, to point B if there's a, a lot of people that want to go from point A uh, to point B. Uh, and cities are dealing with this by uh, a number of cities, growing number of cities, uh, have uh, bus lanes, uh, but they're bus lanes that nobody's uh, really respected. Uh, that is, uh, commercial freight vehicles would park there, and other people would would drive uh, onto those uh, onto those bus lanes. And so, what they did, interestingly enough, was to paint them red. Now, it seems like a very minor innovation, but when they painted them red, suddenly people actually didn't use them. Uh, I mean, it was astounding. Uh, the the uh, the reduction in the amount of traffic on those bus lanes, which meant that there was a great deal more speeding up uh, of the bus and also a great deal less congestion overall uh, on the uh, you know on the roads, so believe it or not. So you know there's that kind of innovation uh, that uh, that is going on. Uh, and finally, uh, in terms of innovation, there are cities starting with Los Angeles that said to the scooter companies at first, and now it's the e-bike companies and the, uh, and the ride share companies, uh, that they needed to share their data with the city uh, in real time. Uh, that is, well, actually somewhat delayed time, but not greatly delayed, so that the city would have access to the information that it needs to design a transportation system uh, within the commons. Uh, and the companies have been very reticent of doing that. They scream about privacy rights. And of course, there are privacy issues involved in that. But essentially, they wanted to own that information uh, and not share it uh, at, at all. Uh, and, uh, and, and cities said, you're using a public space. You don't have to use it. But if you're going to use it, you're going to have to share that information with us so we can plan to use that space more efficiently. 
We're going to take a short break. When we come back, David explains how mass transit fits into this mobility puzzle, the role of e-commerce in clogging public thoroughfares, and what cities need to do to adapt to the micromobility revolution. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Building Local Power with David Morris, ILSR Senior Fellow and Co-Founder. Hey, do you think you'd be a great guest on Building Local Power? Are you dying to tell Chris Mitchell what he could do better? Want to just share some love? Email us at podcast at ilsr.org. You can also send your love with a small donation. If you listen to other podcasts, you might hear about a mattress company or a meal delivery service. But the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is a national organization that supports local economies, so we don't have national advertising. Instead, please consider making a donation to ILSR. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all the resources, from reports to podcasts to interactive maps we make available for free on our website. Please take a minute to go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org donate. We also value your reviews on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Now let's get back to our conversation with David about the micromobility revolution. So I think this is really fascinating. You've raised, I think, a really crucial question here about transit writ large, and you brought up this notion of mass transit and bus lanes, because this seems very interesting, right? So cities, I feel like the way that cities have been involved in trying to facilitate transportation planning is, you know, number one, they have had transit agencies and bus service and ways to help people who sort of can't be part of the personal car uh, transportation uh, economy for one reason or another. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they can't drive a vehicle physically. Maybe there are other uh, values-laden reasons why they don't want to. But now we have mass transits in some ways sort of competing with personal transit for space. Uh, and it raises a number of interesting sort of equity issues, not just about income, which has been kind of the defining factor between mass transit and uh, and personal transit to some degree, but you also have issues around disability access. So, you know, someone in a wheelchair using the sidewalk, a sidewalk's now got scooters all over it. Um, you know, you have bike lanes and bus lanes. Uh, how do, how do, how does this, tr- how does this whole issue of transit fit into the puzzle? I feel like you were starting to get there too, as you were talking about this notion of sharing information, right? How can cities make these good decisions? But talk a little bit more about mass transit versus some of these personal transit options and, you know, where there are tensions and where there might be some harmony. Yes. Uh, well, the issue of equity uh, came up, you know, very quickly. Uh, and in terms of the e-scooters, for example, one of the conditions that cities now routinely impose on those companies that are allowed to to essentially uh, introduce their vehicles into the city uh, is that they introduce them in a way that are in all parts of the city Uh, because these were essentially focused on downtown and the sort of square mile around downtown Uh, and the the feeling was that that uh, low-income neighborhoods uh, needed this just as much if not you know even more and they also required them to discount their rates uh, in low-income areas. So there is, you know, has been an, an equity position related to that. In terms of the mass transit, uh, Kansas City, Missouri is just about to make their bus system free. Their light rail system is already free, but their bus system is just about to be free. And they see that, in fact, as equity. Uh, in fact, they they see it as transportation is a, is a right uh, for people uh, and access is a right 
for people that they should share equally. In some ways, you can think of it as comparable to a, a medical system that says that everyone should be have access uh, to medical care, and that means free or low cost for people who can't afford it. But in this case, it's free. Uh, it will be free um, for um, for everyone. In, in terms of the disabled issue, that's a fascinating issue because it was it was people on wheelchairs uh, that you know initially and the elderly. Uh, who needed help uh, in moving around, who complained most bitterly about the e-scooters that were littering uh, the sidewalks. Uh, and so that, that was the, you know, the major, uh, if you will, impetus to cities essentially imposing a, a ban uh, initially. Um, but the disabled have also been suing cities on the issue of sidewalks. Now, sidewalks, you know, we talked about how sidewalks almost disappeared in the early part of the 20th century and sort of held on, um, but they have been in complete disrepair for the last 60 or 70 years in many cities. Uh, and, uh, and so you have roots that are growing out, you have uneven sidewalks, uh, you might even have a pothole or two in a sidewalk. Uh, and the, uh, the disabled, you know, actually got, you know, a law uh, which is which is the ADA uh, law, and before that they had another one uh, that got you know cities to put ramps on, uh, so that a wheelchair would not have to somehow get over a curb. Um, but more recently, you've had uh, you've had uh, the disabled uh, sue cities uh, for the fact that they that they can't that they're that they're hurt uh, on the sidewalks, uh, and there was a suit. Uh, just in the last few years, uh, in 2015, Los Angeles settled a suit and agreed to spend $1.4 billion to fix its sidewalks. Uh, and uh, just a year ago, Portland, Oregon settled a, a class action dispute by agreeing to upgrade its sidewalks at a cost of $110 million. And other cities are being sued you know, as we speak. Um, so it's, you know, it, 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 it's a fascinating situation where you're, you're having to really deal uh, with, with so many different variables, but cities are beginning to create the, the capacity to do that. Uh, there's one other ground transportation uh, issue that we uh, should talk about, which is e-commerce. Uh, and that is that, you know, you now uh, don't go to a store. Uh, you just, do, you know, on your phone, you order something. Uh, and it gets to deliver to you. And it used to be that it got to de deliver to you uh, in a few days. And then it was delivered to you in two days. And then it was overnight. And now it's two hours uh, in some cities. And that's just overwhelming uh, the streets. In fact, the daily deliveries to households in New York City tripled uh, in the last uh, eight years. Uh, and in a number of places, there is more uh, deliveries uh, that is a product, if you will, uh, deliveries to households uh, than to businesses. Uh, and so you're pushing this congestion into neighborhoods that really the streets weren't built, the neighborhoods weren't built uh, for truck traffic and that kind of traffic related to those, uh, to those deliveries. Uh, and so cities are having to, to deal with that already. Uh, and and uh, and we're only talking about ground transportation. You know, we haven't even talked about the air invasion. You know, cities were invaded by ground, electrified vehicles by ground uh, in in 2017 and and 2018. Uh, and then in 2019, you began to have the beginnings of what you're seeing uh, full fledged in 2020, which is an invasion by air, uh, and that is by drones initially. 
uh, and then by air taxis. Uh, and so the thing about air is that cities can't regulate uh, the uh, flying uh, vehicles. In fact, Newton, Massachusetts, uh, about two years ago, passed an ordinance that banned drones uh, and a federal judge overturned them. They banned low-flying drones, and the federal government, the federal judge, still overturned it, saying it was preempted by the federal government. Uh, and so, you know, cities, but cities can, in fact, regulate the landing. So, you know, they can't say they they can they can't say that no drone can fly, but they can say that no drone can land. Uh, and so, you know, they're having to essentially create uh, rules, if you will. Uh, that that relate to the delivery of goods by by um, and soon maybe people uh, by air uh, as well as uh, by the streets. I mean, the fact that you even brought in drones and air taxis, my mind is sort of spinning, thinking of what the job of a city planner is like right now, trying to account for all of these things that are happening. So you have the individual movement of people that is changing rapidly with ride hailing and cycling and scooters. And so all these different ways of using that public space that is between the sidewalks, the street, which is now there's all this competition for that space. But then you have the competition for that same space uh, because of package deliveries, because of course, instead of going individually to get things as we used to do all the time, now we're having that stuff delivered right to us, but somebody still has to take that trip and, and now it's these delivery vehicles. And then now, of course, we're going into the air to do that as well. So I guess I'm trying to think of a couple different things here. One is, what are the things that cities are having to grapple here? Like, what is the scope of this? What are all, I mean, it seems like there must be so many different departments within a city that have to sort of coordinate and work together to do this. And I and I, I want to follow up with that and, and, and ask if there are cities that are, providing a good example of how to grapple with this, even if they don't have the solutions yet, but are even like figuring, you know, being able to wrap their heads around the challenges that are presented in terms of public right away and, and the regulations of space. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, I think some of the bigger cities uh, are, are, are uh, uh, grappling with it uh, best. Los Angeles uh, San Francisco, uh, New York City, um, but there are smaller, medium-sized cities, uh, Austin and the like, that uh, that that you know that do have a, a relatively good uh, good handle on this, which doesn't mean that they're that they're uh, coping with it in, in a way that doesn't keep them up at night. Uh, but they they are beginning to to understand um, how to approach it, um, and it is. I mean, when you think about a city, you know, a city that is a local government. Uh, creates the rules and has jurisdiction over a finite piece of land. That's what it is, almost by definition. Uh, and that's why, by the way, when you ever have corruption uh, among city officials, it almost invariably has to do with land uh, development. Uh, and so cities have been having to grapple with the issue of affordable housing, uh, the issue of uh, how tall you can build uh, build your your uh, your building uh, buildings, you know, density. Uh, public parks uh, and so forth, um, but uh, in in this case, you know, we're also talking about the streets, uh, and in in it's not unusual for thirty to forty percent of the area of a city uh, to be devoted to transportation, uh, either in the moving transportation, in the parking, in the driveways, in the parking lots, you know, and the like, uh, and so it's a it's you know it's an enormous swath uh, of the city. 
Um, and when you when you look at it, when you step back, you can look at it and say, well, you know, who should have priority, and how do we create rules around this? There's a an interesting. Uh, I, I mentioned the interview with the director of the San Francisco Metropolitan Transit uh, Association and he HC, uh, and he said, you know, that you might begin to to think about imposing a fee based on the amount of space that you take up. So, for example, somebody on a crowded bus, uh, you, you are char- in San Francisco, the fee would be, the admission fee, the bus fee, is $2.50, and that's for two square feet of space, essentially. Uh, and the question then becomes, well, you know, what, what should it be for a, a single occupancy car that takes up 300 square feet? Uh, of space, uh, and how do you play with those different uh, p- uh, parameters? Uh, so you, you, I mean, it's fascinating, you know, because after all, what are you taking into account? Uh, you're taking into account uh, how many people can pass a given point in a given amount of time, uh, and by the way, that turns out to be bikes, uh, uh, and, you know, certainly not cars. Um, but then you have to have enough enough bikes. And then what do you do if you happen to be a city that has a very hard winter? Uh, and so everything is peaking in June and July. And, uh, and that 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 area is not really used uh, in, uh, in in February and March. So there are a lot of things that, you know, that are on the table. Um, and the the uh, one takes into account the impact on the environment. One takes into account the equity uh, implications of it. Uh, and and uh, and cities are trying to develop the rules, but no city has done what I'm about to suggest. But I think that they need to, uh, which is to essentially get on the bully pulpit and say to people, "Look, here's the problem: we all have wants and desires, and the technology is now capable, in a physical way, of catering to those wants and the desires." But we have a finite amount of space available and a finite amount of psychic energy available. So maybe we should have a discussion about which of those wants and desires will not be fulfilled or more, more, uh, I think, more obviously, will not be fulfilled as quickly as you would like it to be. For example, drones are noisy. Well, you're, you're now imposing a noise. Now, cities can create noise ordinances for ground level traffic, but they can't for uh, air traffic. Um, so what, what do you do? Do you say, well, you're just not going to have one hour delivery by drones. Uh, you will have the use of drones uh, the way you have the use of helicopters, that is for medical uh, emergencies uh, or, or, or the like. Um, but you're not going to have it routinely. And, and what about your two hour deliveries? Uh, in cities, uh, what is the cost of a two-hour delivery? Uh, and and maybe what we should do is have a culture that says, no, we're actually not going to have two-hour deliveries. Is it that important? I mean, after all, uh, fifty thousand years, and let's just say uh, uh, two hundred years, or one hundred years, or fifty years, or or, or twenty-five years of of living perfectly well with having to go to a restaurant rather than have the restaurant come to you. Uh, it seems to me we need to, you know, begin to think about, you know, think about these things in a in a meta way, as well as thinking about things uh, in the uh, in the rules way. Because right now we're trying to uh, effect rules 
that enable these things to happen. I mean, every city that, that I have been in touch with is trying to figure out rules that enable the delivery of things within two hours. Uh, and it may be that we need to step back and say, well, why don't we think about whether, uh, in fact, we, you know, what will be the cost of those rules? There will always be a cost and maybe they will over, overwhelm uh, the benefits uh, and we can have uh, maybe delivery uh, for people who can't get out, uh, maybe delivery in certain circumstances, but that it once again will not be routine. You know, this is, I think, a really interesting question. I, I'd like to leave it, this conversation and in some ways, I just ground it with a couple more examples. And I don't know if these are, would be specific examples, real examples, I guess. But in terms of these trade-offs, uh, in terms of wrestling with this, I think you've really highlighted cities sort of have to call this question of values about how we use public space. What's maybe an example? Um, you know, I think I've heard you talk before about bike lanes as an interesting example, and you mentioned the winter. So I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, or, and then is there any other kind of example like that about when we make a decision, like to build a protected bike lane and take away a lane from cars that requires us to make this kind of values trade-off? So maybe you could start with, you know, Minneapolis is a great city to give this example, right? Not a lot of cyclists in the winter. Uh, but we do have a number of miles of bike lane that have taken a lane from car traffic uh, that is claimed year round. Uh, and so what implication does that have in terms of the values that we have and how might we change that policy or change what we do to more align with the values that are behind having that bike lane, which are presumably around environmentalism and, uh, and you know, different kinds of mobility? Yeah, that's a very good question. And in some ways, it's a key question. Uh, you know, people now, you know, when they think about the street, they think about the, the current car, which is a internal combustion engine car that gets 20 miles, 30 miles, maybe, you know, per gallon. And it's big. Uh, now, you know, one can envision uh, electric cars. Uh, and so now electric cars, you're talking about much less polluting and not polluting at all within uh, the city. And one can envision small electric cars. We do now have very small uh, uh, electric cars. Uh, so if one thinks that the actual the car piece of the street uh, will be profoundly different, uh, then when one thinks about the environmental impacts you know, of these, uh, it becomes a, a very different, uh, a very different equation. Uh, the second thing is that if you're building a new city uh, or a new neighborhood uh, and you can do it you know, from scratch, then you may very well have streets that aren't as wide or you will have more lanes uh, within the streets. Uh, e either uh, lanes will be narrower. And so, you know, there's that as well in terms of the the issue of the, you know, the bike lane. Uh, maybe it's not a bike lane. Maybe it's a light vehicle uh, lane. Uh, and then if it turns out that that really in terms of health, let's say it's pedaling uh, that you're actually doing in that uh, in that vehicle uh, and that you and that are having the same number of of people pass a certain point. So you can get to point eight on uh, mass, um, then, you know, that may be something that you that you put into the, the city. But it becomes a, an, an interesting question if, let's say, for example, you are talking about. Uh, smaller electric vehicles, essentially, uh, as the vehicle that's the primary, if not the only vehicle that's on the street, 
and then you have a protected bike lane uh, that is taking some of that space and it's protected uh, and people don't use it three months out of the year. Well, then what you need to do is to have a, a discussion about that. Uh, and, you know, we can we can make choices. Uh, that's what we do, really. You don't want an algorithm to make that choice. And you don't, in some ways, want transportation planners to make that choice because they might not have your values. Uh, and so it may be that a, that a city says, look, that's OK. Uh, and there are a number of people who will, in fact, uh, do it during that during the, the winter months. And we might have a technological uh, ability to expand uh, the number of months out of the year that we that we we travel on our our personal uh, vehicles, but let's say we don't. Uh, still, the the advantages, the enormous advantages, in so many different ways uh, of being able to have that access without worrying about public safety for six months a year, or eight months a year, or ten months a year, you know, outweighs the fact that uh, that lane's not going to be used that much uh, during the winter. Well, David, thank you so much for taking us through not only what's happening now in cities, but also the history that has led us to this fascinating debate about mobility and equity in cities and how they are wrestling with the use of their authority around this. We often wrap up Building Local Power with a reading recommendation, and I realize I didn't prompt you before our conversation to think of anything, but you seem to be reading amazing things all of the time, so I'm confident that if I toss this to you, you probably could recommend something that you've been reading recently. Well, uh, it, it caught me uh, unawares. Otherwise, I would have had a marvelous book for you to read about transportation. Um, but uh, but let me let me not do that uh, and suggest a book by Kim Stanley Robinson, who's a science fiction writer, also happens to live relatively nearby me now. And he's been writing for a number of years. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, his most recent book, I believe, uh, is essentially New York 2040. Uh, and it is the first book that I had read, uh, which is a book set after global warming has melted the ice caps. And so the seas have risen by 15 feet. But it's not a post-apocalyptic book. It's a post-sea level rise book. And it's set in Manhattan in New York City, because in Manhattan, the upper Manhattan is about 30 feet higher than lower Manhattan. Uh, and so lower Manhattan is submerged. Middle Manhattan, sort of half of the buildings are submerged and upper Manhattan, they're dry. Uh, and then the, the book essentially talks about how life goes on. Uh, you have a finance industry, you have crooks and frauds and developers and tenants and so on and so forth that are all trying to figure out how to, how to operate uh, while the seas are now 15 feet higher. And I found it to be a very, very useful way uh, to, you know, to sort of uh, get the point that no matter happen, what happens to the environment, human nature may very well not change and the institutions are going to change very, very slowly. Uh, and so we need to think about what it would mean in a changed environment if we did have the same institutions and the same value systems. I really like that recommendation, David. I think it's really apropos to our conversation because it's in a way it's saying in the same way that human creations like technology, like GPS or scooters have caused us to have to wrestle with how do we deal with this, that the environment right now is going to throw similar curveballs at us and that we have to adapt, but not necessarily that everything's going to come to an end, but that we have to wrestle with very interesting challenges. So thank you for that recommendation. Well, thanks for asking. Thank you so much for tuning in to Building Local Power. This is John Farrell, ILSR co-director. 
I was speaking with David Morris, senior fellow and co-founder of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can read more of David's work on our website feature, From the Desk of David Morris, where he explores complex issues of the public good in depth. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 80 past episodes of the Building Local Power podcast and show us some love with a contribution to help cover the costs of producing this podcast. You can also help us out a lot by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends via Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. Or just drop us a line at podcast at ilsr.org. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. Please join us next time in Building Local Power. Thank you.